electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Elon Musk, Twitter, will they? I don't know if anyone can really look into the mind of Elon Musk. Won't they? The deal of 2022 could be in jeopardy. Axios' Sarah Fisher. The powers in Twitter's board right now, Elon Musk is not in a good position. And merger strategist Aaron Glick of Cowan. The most likely outcome is a price cut. A hot jobs report could defy recession fears. This is some recession we're having, isn't it? June's monthly employment figures better than expected. What that means for policymakers trying to keep us off a cliff. So finds Liz Young. And these numbers are telling us, okay, we're not there yet. We can still absorb some more rate hikes in the economy before things actually break. Plus a staffing curveball at the original meme stock, GameStop. I guess you can have a new business model that does more online, but I can't imagine you're going to be visiting GameStop retail locations. It's Friday, July 8th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by in three, two, one, kill please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Joe Kernan. Becky and Andrew are off today, back next week. You know, you, you come on Squawk Box for four straight days. The markets rally for four straight days. Coincidence, I, I'm not convinced that, uh, that, that it's not related. First up today... It's back, the continuing saga of Elon Musk and Twitter. Shares of the social media company slipping on a Washington Post report that the deal, the deal, richest man in the world Elon Musk's $44 billion bid to buy Twitter, it may be in jeopardy. People familiar with the matter told the paper that Musk's team doesn't think Twitter's figures on spam accounts are reliable, and they are prepared to make a change in direction. Twitter held a virtual briefing with reporters yesterday to explain how it IDs bots on the platform. The company said it has trained workers to use internal data and engagement, and that spam accounts are less than 5% of its monetizable daily active users. Now, if Musk walks, he faces a $1 billion breakup fee that was negotiated when Twitter agreed to sell itself to Musk for $54.20 a share. Twitter could try to hold Musk to the original terms if his reasons for backing out aren't related to its core business. I don't want to own Twitter. You don't want to own Twitter. You love Twitter. You love Twitter. No, You're I on don't. Twitter all the I time. don't like it. You engage with the only all reason I engage is because I just I don't like I don't like just saying okay, say whatever you want, and, and I'm not going to say something back. That's what I don't like. I, I'm going to say something back because, because Tend I just. Tend your Teflon. It doesn't stick. I, I just, uh, it's not, look, thank you, sir. May I have another? It's going to, I'm going to call them out on whatever their weakest point is, if I can find it. But no, it, it's a white elephant. It's not worth $30 billion. Seen, it's not but, worth $50 okay, billion. Dollars. The argument, though, for owning Twitter here is that you've seen all of the warts. So you, now you know that the potential fake account issue is out there and that you don't know how many bots there are. Okay, you know that. You know that there aren't any other buyers out there. That's in the price. All these negative things are in the price. So one could argue that there is a floor what, what if in the, the stock. I don't know. What if the deal's 
is off. Then what? Right. It, it never traded like it was on. Yeah, but let's say it's off totally. You don't think it goes below 30? I don't know at this point. No, maybe, I guess maybe it's a love-hate relationship. I like to, to see things that are going on. I find out things that are going on. Maybe I ought to just not look. Is there a way you can just get any mentions? You just get rid of those. You don't. But then sometimes you hear some useful things. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of flaws. But, and I, you know, attribute social media for the decline of Western civilization. Right. And yet you engage... Oh, I do. I, I get... Aggressively. I do. Do you? You need a thick skin. You don't? I don't. I see some things you say occasionally. I don't, I don't engage like you do. Well, maybe I won't. Um, for me to engage, you've got to have zero followers. Joining us now is Aaron Glick, Cowan merger strategist, and Sarah Fisher, Axios media reporter. And it'd be nice... I'll start with you, Aaron. It'd be nice if... if Elon had a grand plan. I could ascribe all types of motivation to, to maybe what he was doing. He could have accomplished what he wanted to accomplish already in terms of, uh, you know, just bringing the, the free speech um, discourse to the fore. We've, we've done that. Um, do you think he wanted it? Do you think he wants it now? And do you think the deal ever closes? Yeah, look, I mean, most investors are still uh, positioning for a potential price cut. We saw last week actually some several uh, several large option trades go up, what we would refer to as one by two call spreads, playing for a price cut, about a 10% price cut. And I think investors have generally been saving some dry powder uh, for this potential occurrence, specifically for the filing of a lawsuit uh, so that they could build exposure uh, because most people think that uh, uh, Twitter still is a better case here and that the most likely outcome again is a price cut. Sarah, do you, give me everything. Give me everything you got. What, what, what you know, some good conspiracy theories, what, what could be going on in the back of your mind. And, and remember, we're talking about Elon Musk here. So I don't, I don't know if anyone can really look into the mind of Elon Musk with, with a lot of certainty to figure out what's going on. What do you think's really happening? Well, I think he's obviously trying to either negotiate the price down or back out of the deal. But what he's probably doing is talking to lawyers behind the scenes and trying to figure out what's the most tempered approach to get there. You'll notice he's been tweeting a lot less erratically. He's been acting a little bit more quietly behind the scenes. What I imagine is happening is this. One, he's trying to figure out, okay, if I were to walk from this deal, because remember that $1 billion breakup fee only applies to certain clauses. He can't just walk away and pay a billion dollars because he thinks that they're spam bots. He weighed his due diligence for that. So he's probably calculating, if I walk away, what's the likelihood that Twitter sues? If Twitter sues and it goes to a Delaware Chancery Court, what's the likelihood that they force me to pay? Remember, there are precedents for this, Joe. You remember John Tyson with IPB back in 2001 was forced to buy that company because he had the money to do so. Elon Musk does have the money to do so if he liquidated Tesla stock. Now, another option could be, could he be negotiating with Twitter's board right now to essentially decrease the price? And that way he could get the deal done over the finish line sooner. Remember, he extended that deal term line deadline for six months. So that means Twitter's board could be looking at another 10 months of uncertainty. They don't want that, Joe. It's been getting messy already. So then that's another option. And then the third option that he could be thinking about is, OK, is there a fee that I could pay Twitter, maybe higher than the breakup? that they would agree to allow me to walk. I think that is highly unlikely, Joe. Twitter's board has all the power here, especially because, again, Elon Musk signed that agreement. I think they're going to either try to get this to court and force Elon Musk to buy it at that whopping $44 billion price tag, or 
They may try to figure out a deal to lower the price to get it over the finish line. But it's really the power is in Twitter's board uh, right now. Elon Musk is not in a good position. Aaron, what, what do you think Twitter's worth if, if the deal was off? What, what would be the fair value? Is that fair value less than what it was? When is it damaged? Has it been damaged in this whole process? Or was it it was kind of not great to start with, I don't think. They got a lot of issues. Yeah, well, so investors were wondering why Twitter held that media call yesterday. I think we saw some investors shorting after that media call. They took it as a bad sign, uh, thinking that there was probably something negative coming out from Musk, right? Why else hold that call? Another reason to potentially hold that call could be that Musk's uh, campaign and all of his claims about inauthentic accounts are hurting advertising. And that, that's another thing that investors are trying to grapple with. So I, I think there's some uncertainty what Twitter could be worth standalone. Uh, talking to investors, I think that most have lowered their standalone uh, uh, um, projections. I think Twitter could be somewhere around the $20 range. Again, that's not, that's not my uh, call on what Twitter's value is worth. That's what I'm hearing from investors they're using as their standalone value. <laughs> 20. 20. Uh, well, you know, you don't pay 54 for something that's worth 20. You don't pay 54. And 20. that's why we're here. It well, is. It, it, to get out on that point, though, they're, they're basically making, at a, when they're lucky, a billion dollars in EBITDA a year, and they're not consistently profitable. So if you think about it, a $44 billion price tag, 44X on EBITDA, that's extraordinary. Now, it's not totally unprecedented. If you look at Snapchat right now, they had about 617 million in profit last year. Their market value is around 24 billion. So that puts them at about 40X. So aligned with their advertising competitors that are smaller than Meta or Google, you know, it's not totally ridiculous. But I think a rational person would say that Twitter's growth prospects are really limited, especially compared to Snapchat. You know, Snap's up to 330 million active daily active users. Twitter's only, I think, at 220 million. The growth projections are not, you know, looking very achievable if you ask most analysts. So I, I agree. I think the $20 price range is probably right for Twitter, especially because there are other bets. Things like subscriptions have not taken off. Do you think, Sarah, that advertisers are are going back to Twitter and saying, what are your numbers? I mean, I remember when, when Elon Musk first brought up the, the fake account issue as being a bigger issue um, than what the company had been previously saying it was. Um, my first thought was, you know, Wall Street analysts are plugging into a model, a number that was given to them by the company as being true. We don't really understand how they came up with that number. And that sort of shocked me. And it raises all sorts of questions. And so to Aaron's point, you know, are people wondering what they're paying for when they buy advertising on Twitter at this point? Because that could seriously impair some of the projections that you just outlined. Yeah, well, we're in a different era now than we used to be at the beginning of Twitter. We have better data and analytics measurement. Ad agencies understand ROI. And so I don't think that they're going into this blind. But the big challenge that Twitter has is that 85% of their advertising business is big brands. And if you look at all their other competitors, it's not big brands. Most of their ad business is small, medium-sized businesses. I think that's where advertisers are concerned. Is Twitter's self-serve platform effective enough for people who just need to get a direct to sale over the finish line? If you're a big brand, you don't need to have a direct, this ad led me to this purchase. You need to know that there's going to be a halo effect and Twitter has the halo effect. You know, they've got exclusive rights for some sports games and for some award shows. I think the challenge is they've never been able to demonstrate to the small advertisers that they're effective. And that's why they have not been able to grow the ad business. All right, we're going to go. I'm looking at your Twitter account now, Sarah. You don't really engage 
uh, and I'm going to send you something uh, and see if I can like trigger you uh, on something Please. and see if you'll engage. No, let's go back and forth. What, what's that? Let's go back and forth. Let's go. Back. <laughs> I look. You use it. You use it just. You use it just for business. Do you. But I bet you've never gotten a bad tweet, have you? About yourself? Not a bad tweet. Yeah, you get bad tweets all the time. But you know, my experiences with Twitter, and this goes to what Elon's you know thing is. You get out of it what you put in. You know, if you use it just professionally and you use it occasionally, then you're for the most part going to get back professional engagement and occasional engagement. Why Elon Musk gets so many bots that are clouding his feed? One, he has obviously a huge following, over 100 million people, but he is somebody who's trying to antagonize a lot of his users, right? He's asking questions, he's making jokes, and so that's why he gets a lot of that right. sort of spammy activity back. Yeah, I do that. I, I, you know what? There are times I see something and I go, I cannot wait to, re, to tweet this, um, to, to trigger people. So that's why maybe I get, uh, Aaron, I'm, uh, I'm looking up yours. Uh, do you, do you do anything? Do you engage? If I send you something nasty, will you will you will you engage? Very little. The powers that be at Cowan don't love us on Twitter for, for they, obvious they reasons. Don't. Well, you know what? You you have like some fiduciary things to worry about too, probably. Don't exactly. you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was nasty constraints. I don't think I have any. Um, thank you. you don't. <laughs> thank you both, Sarah. You start. You start. Sarah. All right. See you later. Thank you both. This is a good time to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. You can also find Joe Kernan at Joe Squawk and Melissa at Melissa Lee CNBC. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, the monthly jobs report offers a positive picture of the economy. Are wages ticking higher to keep workers engaged? CNBC's Steve Leisman on the numbers. Business owners may be dumb, but they're not stupid. And I apologize to all the business owners out there. You know what I'm saying, though. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan, along with uh, Melissa Lee. You know, our legislators are, are useless. Why can't they do things like this? The Dutch Parliament approved legislation to establish home working as a legal right. So working from WFH is your right. Yes. What if you're a... I don't know. What if you're someone who can't do what they do? Worker? Yeah. What if you? It's. I don't understand how that can well, be a legal be, right. Be loopholes. I mean, if you're a cashier, one of the first countries to enshrine such flexibility into the law. It's hard to get people back to work. Still, David Solomon and others have, have talked about how hard it is in New York to get people. Of course, Goldman had its own issues with with crime in in New York with that. Yeah. 
shocking uh, thing on the subway a couple weeks ago. But it is going to cost more money to get people to come back. We're going to have a discussion about at that. At this point, at this yeah. point. Right. But when the wage picture or when the jobs picture goes the other way and employers start having the upper hand once again, then they will say, you come back to work or you don't have a job. But when you said change. it didn't say anything about uh, Becky and Andrew, but you like sighed and said, Becky and Andrew will be back next week. Did you know at the top of the show? Really? Yeah, I think that I, that's, that's how I heard it. That's how I heard it. Maybe that's the way I secretly feel. <laughs> Well, it's hard so to get secretly. up. I know it's hard, to, but I know you like being here. But it is hard. Yes, I do. But it's hard to get up. Yeah, get up. it is. And the <laughs> I fourth commend day, you. <laughs> yeah, I know. The fourth day is like, wow. Yeah. This is no way. No, but I have the adrenaline knowing that this is the last. Day <laughs> yeah, you do. Just <laughs> the excitement. The excitement. It's Jobs Friday, and the U.S. Labor Department has released the June Employment Report, giving us a window into the state of jobs and workers in America. A couple of things we talk about a lot, every day this week on the podcast, in fact, surging inflation and a potential recession. Those feel like significant headwinds to the U.S. economy. And maybe some things are a little glum recently. Higher prices. Yesterday's weekly new claims for unemployment hit a six-month high. But the labor market, it might not be that bad. The numbers are out, 372,000. The unemployment rate remained at 3.6, one, two, three, four. Fourth month in my memory of 3.6. That's our Rick Santelli this morning. 372,000 jobs were created in the U.S. during the month of June. That is much better than economists were expecting. The markets kind of shrugged, took a while to digest things. Many investors believe this positive news gives a little more runway to the Federal Reserve to aggressively raise interest rates in the coming months to curb inflation. Treasury yields jumped sharply after the jobs data was released. Tech stocks and other high-growth sectors are sensitive to rising rates, which could devalue future earnings and profitability. So... Good news? Mixed news? Let's get back to Joe, Melissa, and CNBC's economics correspondent, Steve Leisman. We'll snap that winning streak that we had in the books. We it could. was four days. We could. Um, I'm not... We, oh, yes. I'm okay, not willing not. to ignore... I'm not, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to silver lining this again. This is what... Well, I mean, deep down, this is what we want. We want wage lining, gains right. and we want jobs, okay? Is that this is supported commodities to corporate have, earnings, right. and commodities which should be have, good. Right, and commodities have, have already rolled over. This is a backward-looking type of thing. And maybe wage gains, and, and uh, this will but, cool a little bit. But... So I, st- earnings, I think that, but also supportive for the Fed's case to keep being aggressive. Uh, it is, it is, and but, that's, but that's I think it's warped. Issue. I think it's warped and unpatriotic well, to sell the markets based on unpatriotic. <laughs> I just mean these are good. It's a great. It, it is a very positive report, and we should it, it, positive things should engender positive Except feelings. That positive in this context means inflation remains. It does, high. but I, I we we decided it was so, per- permatory. Steve Leisman, what's your reaction? Um, I don't see the report as inflationary, but remember, we're looking for the number of uh, jobs created for the number of workers, and kind of the unemployment rate tells you all you more or less need to know on that score. Um, what's What's nice is um, this is some recession we're having, isn't it? I mean, you know, 372,000 jobs in the middle of, of a recession that everybody has called. Uh, because you have a you know trade and inventory numbers subtracting from GDP, um, I just don't see it. I don't see it at least now. I mean, like I went on vacation for a week, and everybody was talking about a recession in 2023. I came back, and everybody's talking about a recession now. But 
we had jobless claims be very, very robust or still, still pretty low. Um, we have a good job growth in the economy, good job growth, leisure and hospitality still coming back from the pandemic. I'm not saying the economy doesn't have challenges and serious ones. I just have a hard time calling a recession with a 3.6% unemployment rate and 372,000 jobs and average job growth over the, over the course of the year, 456,000 every month. Steve, you know, when I said inflationary, I was thinking in terms of the strong jobs market being supportive of higher wages in that inflationary aspect being the very pesky, a pesky one for corporate America and for the Fed. So would it be enough for the Fed, in your view, if we see a, a downturn and a rollover in commodity prices, but we still see higher wages, we see the wage pressure, we see higher rents, et cetera? I think that's a part of it. Um, and I also think, you know, you did see the participation rate tick down a bit. That, that, that is a problem. And I agree with you on that score, uh, Melissa. I think the Fed wants to see people back to work. Um, I, I think that uh, we want to get back to the prior participation rate we had, uh, and we don't really know the reasons. We spent a lot of money here at CNBC to do a work, to do a survey to find out why people have left the workforce. We find that people will come back in at the right wage. So, you know, Melissa, you may know this in your life. I think Joe knows it in his life. If you have a problem, throw money at it. Sometimes that works, and that may be the the way to solve this problem. So. Um, I'm not sure the Fed would, would think that's a bad thing. It's just weird that, we're, you know, suddenly we're not worried about a recession imminently, but because we're going along so well, heck, get that Fed going so they can cause the recession. They got to get back. And that's why we get nervous about numbers like that, because it means the Fed's going to be. And that's no way to run a country, I don't think. But, but you're right. That's, that's we gotta the dynamic get in the market. We got to right get now. inflation under control. And Liz Young is head of investment strategy at SoFi. Liz, what's, what's your reaction to the market reaction, especially as we are on the precipice of earnings season. I don't know if this really changes uh, earnings season and the concern that estimates are still too high because that's sort of the near-term concern of investors. The market reaction right now, I think, is giving back some of the positivity that we had earlier in the week. And we're pricing back in the idea that the Fed is here to stay. They're going to keep their claws on this. And we're trying to correct some of that little bounce. Now, the market has Priced incorrectly, I think, at this point, Fed hikes, what we haven't priced in is a recession. And these numbers are telling us, okay, we're not there yet. We can still absorb some more rate hikes in the economy before things actually break. What I would remind people of, though, is that the labor market usually breaks last. Companies will do everything they can to cut costs in other places before they lay off employees. So this is something that might be a much more lagged indicator. Liz, and the other reaction you want to watch Liz, in the market is the I, dollar. I'm today. sorry to interrupt, Liz. Go ahead. Yeah. They, but they wouldn't hire people, right? I mean, I get that they would hoard labor, but if they're yeah. still hiring, that's a sign that yep. they have demand for it, right? I mean... You know, business owners may be dumb, but they're not stupid. And I apologize to all the business owners out there. You know what I'm saying, though. Yeah, it's the jolts that number that we want to start to see come down first. And then you start to see a meaningful uptick in things like initial claims, continuing claims. And then it bakes into these monthly numbers. So you have to see the openings fall first. We still have a huge gap there, which is why we keep talking about a tight labor market. And those are starting to come down, but they're still really high. There's still a lot of job openings out there. Cheese will be next. Next, GameStop back in the headlines. Right after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee. And power to the player or players. 
More drama at GameStop, the video game retailer firing its CFO, Mike Rucupero. He is said to have been pushed out by Chairman Ryan Cohen. GameStop's current chief accounting officer will become CFO. The company also telling employees in an internal memo that it is cutting staff on the corporate side as it tries to turn its business around. That stock is down 7.5%. And, Joe, of course, this after the rise during the regular session on the back of the news of the split. So the timing is interesting. GameStop, you know, when it was 5 or $6, it looked like Blockbuster. Then it went to $400. I don't know what that was. That was a uh, kind of a representation of the times, I, I think. $125? Uh, I, I guess you can have a new business model that does more online, but I, I can't imagine you're going to be visiting GameStop uh, retail locations. Like my son used to all the time go there. You talk right. to people, find out Just about Just like Blockbuster. Right. Used to go and rent a DVD or, right. or maybe back in then your talk, day a, a beta tape. Yeah, beta tape. Beta, I, 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 unfortunately, I did have Betamax. And um, MySpace was, I'm still trying to get rid of MySpace on my Blackberry, but it's, it's not easy. Um, <laughs> but I do listen to some great music on my Walkman. And that's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Melissa Lee for sitting in this week. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern for Squawk Box. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.